mind taking it and turning to Romans chapter 8 today. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black Bible uh, on the end of the pew somewhere near you. And that Bible, it's on page 944. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible at all, then that's our gift to you. We want you to, to have it as a Thanksgiving gift today. We're going to be today in Romans 8, 28 mainly, but also part of verse 29. We'll circle back next week to all of verse 29 as well as verse 30, but uh, we're, we're going to do most of, or excuse me, all of 28, part of 29. But let's, let's start reading together at verse 26, and we'll go all the way through verse 30, just as we kind of set our minds on where we are in the scriptures right now. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then here's where we are today. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, we, uh, this time of year, um, often set our minds on giving thanks, which is something that we're called to do not just once a year, but as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, that we're to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And when he says to give thanks in all circumstances, it doesn't just mean to give thanks all the time, but to give thanks all the time in every circumstance that may come about. Sometimes we would see something like that and we would think, well, what, what a naive thing for the Bible to say. Doesn't the Bible know that there are hard circumstances? Well, that's exactly what that verse is about. That's exactly what it's about. But it kind of makes us wonder, how, how is that possible? How is it possible for us to give thanks in all circumstances? Well, the answer is, this verse that we're looking at today, and there's a lot of verses in the Bible that are the answer, but this is one of the main ones that we go to when we think, well, how is it possible? Why would it be appropriate for us to give thanks in all circumstances? And this is one of the most famous verses in the Bible and one of the least understood. That We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, as I said, since this is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, if you've been around church at all, you probably know this verse. You might have it memorized. If you don't have it memorized, then you've probably got some version of it that you've accidentally memorized with the words a little bit wrong because you've heard it so much. And, and so we kind of have this concept in our head. God is working things together for good. But at the same time, it often gets twisted in all kinds of ways. This is the reason we can give thanks in all circumstances, because God is working them together for good. But what does that mean? 
Well, we're going to answer four questions today about this to try to, to try to think through what does this verse actually mean? How can we understand it rightly so that we're assured by it rightly in a way that's God-honoring and helpful to us? So the four questions are going to be who works all things together for our good? Whose good is this for? What is our good that God's working everything together for? And then what things are working together for our good? And if you wanted to write down those questions, then you probably haven't noticed that they're already written down on the back of the bulletin. You might want to follow along there. It's a good place to go. And I will say, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I, I know that my preaching tends to be pretty heavy in quoting verses from across the Bible, um, but it's going to be more of that than usual today. And the reason for that is that I don't want you to just walk away and say, boy, the preacher has a weird philosophy about how God can twist bad things into good. I'd much, much rather you walk away today saying, boy, the scripture has a weird philosophy of how God twists things together for good. And if I think it's weird, maybe I'm the one who's thinking weird. Maybe I need to get my mind where the scripture is in terms of how it is that God can take all of these difficult things and turn them for the good of his people for all eternity. But the first question we need to answer is, who is it that works all things together for our good? Who is it that does that? You see in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, and we'll come back to that in a second, all things work together for good. There's a footnote here in the ESV. It says some manuscripts say God works all things together for good, or God works in all things for the good. So as you go back to the ancient manuscripts, there's some that put the name God there as the one who is doing the working. There's other manuscripts where the name God there is absent, which probably means that it wasn't there originally because they'd be a lot more likely to add it than to take it out. But the question is, well, that, does that really change things? Like if, if the name God isn't there about who's working things together for good, does that mean that they're just kind of like falling together by fate? It's just sort of, you know, it's, it's all just random, but boy, it's going to come out beautiful in the end. No, it's not saying that at all. Regardless of whether you, you insert the word God there or not, it's pretty obvious that what it's talking about is not some sort of an abstract, impersonal universe force, or even worse, some other God, or you know your, your ability to, uh, to keep your feet propped up in just the right place on your coffee table to make the giants win causing all things to work together, right? All of those kinds of things where we, we as human beings with sinful natures have a tendency to try to attribute the way that the world works to forces other than God, whether we think that those forces are personal or not, whether we give them a name or not. What's happening here is that we're seeing God is the one who does this. This is a work of God, and a work of no other. God is the one who is over all things. A way to put this is that God is sovereign. God has decreed the end from the beginning. 
Before God ever did anything as far as saying, let there be light, as far as creating, God had everything, everything big and everything little, meticulously planned so that there is absolutely not one rogue molecule in the universe. None. Let me, let me just show you this from the Scripture. Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Hear that? He's he's going through and saying, is there some place where you think maybe I'm not talking about? Well, I'm talking about that too. Everywhere, everything Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Isaiah 46, verse 10, that the Lord is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet, not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Or Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, it says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or Psalm 33, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. I'll just give you one more. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, if you're trying to find some way to think about how maybe there is something that is going not according to God's plan, all of these, the way that the Bible speaks of God and how he accomplishes his will in all of creation, it's going to tell you this is in the will of the Lord may not be in the will of the Lord in terms of what he has commanded that people ought to be doing or that Satan ought to be doing. And yet, everything that comes to pass, everything is within the counsel of the Lord. Now, some, some would step back from that and say, well, we are accusing God of evil. Absolutely not. He does it in such a way that he can never, ever, ever take even the most minimal blame for sin. Sin is always completely the fault of the sinner. And yet what we're seeing in all of this is that even in those things, his counsel, his purpose will stand. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. What the Lord has willed will come to pass. You can't mess it up. He's in charge. Now, one way to look at that is, boy, but this bad thing happened to me. How, how can I trust in God if, if God is sovereign over all things and this bad thing has happened to me? Well, it's because God is causing all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's what we're going to get to. And just, just hold that thought for a minute, all right? Hold that thought. But the question next is, for whose good? Whose good 
is God causing all things to work together for? This is, this is probably the main place where this verse gets most misunderstood. Because you hear this verse quoted, or something like it, not just in churches, not just in believing churches, but in unbelieving churches. You hear it quoted not even just in unbelieving churches or, or, or places like that. You hear it quoted out there on the street, in the world. You, you, you hear it on TV. The, the, I, I've started for a while, Micah and I started to watch a TV show that was based on this verse from an unbelieving perspective. And it's so amazing how you'll hear so many people say, well, well God's working everything out for good. Okay? And you can kind of throw that around, like, well, a bad thing happened, God's working everything out for good. But I, we've got to take a step back here, and we have to realize it does not say that God is working all things for all people's good. What does it say? Well, it says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So that's the first thing it says. It's not about those who hate God. It's not about those who are indifferent to God. It's not about those who have sort of a positive view of God. It's for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Another way to put this is to say that this is talking about those who have saving faith in Jesus Christ. This is, this is not talking about an abstract idea of God that's separated from Jesus. It's not saying that those who are over there serving Allah with very sincere hearts of love for Allah, that God is causing things to work together for their good. No, because Jesus said this. He said to the Pharisees, the Pharisees who made themselves look like these great spiritual leaders who pretended to love God. He said this, if God were your father, you would love me. You hear that? We love God in Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. This is talking not about everybody in the world, not about everybody who's religious. This is talking about saved believers in Jesus Christ, those who love God, not a God without Christ. It's not talking about Satan's faith. It's not talking about those who just understand the truth of the gospel and affirm that it's true. Because Satan understands the truth of the gospel and affirms that it's true, but he hates God. Understanding the truth of the gospel and affirming that it's true is not faith. It's knowledge. Faith looks like coming to God in Jesus Christ in repentance of your sin, brokenness over your sin, love for this God who forgives in Jesus, giving yourself over to him in love. Here's what, here's what love for God looks like. It looks like a plain, heartfelt, childlike love for God himself. Romans 5.5, 5. hope does not put us to shame because... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or, as he said earlier in Romans 8, that, that the Holy Spirit, as we've come to faith in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit causes our hearts to cry out to God, Abba, Father, to love God from the heart. 
Another way that it looks to love God is, is to have a heart that loves to obey God in holiness. A heart that's no longer saying, boy, I just hate that I have to obey God. I hate that I have to do these things. Here's what it says in 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Hear that? That's talking about the same thing that Jeremiah said back in Jeremiah chapter 31 when he was telling about the new covenant that God would give, that God would send his spirit and write his law on their hearts. That's about a change of will. This is one way that we know that we love God. It's not that we always perfectly obey his commands. You know, we've got to go back to Romans 7, and we'll see that that's not the case. We're still in need of repentance on a daily basis. And yet, when we come to love God, we can't stay in love with sin. We, 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 we now look at God's commandments and we say, God, I love to obey your commandments. Your commandments are not burdensome to me, even if my will sometimes conflicts with them, even if I sometimes disobey. To love God, that's just part of what it looks like to be a saved person, somebody who's been born again. Or another way to think of it, it it's a plain, heartfelt, childlike love for God. It's a heart that loves to obey God in holiness. And it also looks like a love that is demonstrated in a love for others, especially a love for God's people, the church, the saints. There's a lot, a lot of people out there who say, well, yes, I love God, but I don't want anything to do with that church. Oh, I love God. Me and God are like this. I pray every day. But that church is full of hypocrites. I'm not going there. You know what the Bible says about that? 1 John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, you know what? Those, those things that I just told you, to have a plain faith and love for God in our hearts, that plays out in a a desire to obey him out of love and a desire to love others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, that's just the plain thing of what it looks like to be a Christian. If you want to know more about those things, I'd suggest that you take 20 minutes this afternoon and sit down and read through the book of 1 John. And you'll see them repeated over and over and over for our assurance as believers. Here's what it looks like to be a believer. We believe in Christ. We love to obey and we love our brothers. But when we say all things work together for good, it says for those who love God. Another way to put it is the way that he puts it at the end of the verse, for those who are called according to his purpose. When we say love God, that's kind of looking at it from the perspective that we have here as, as man. As we look and we say, well, yes, I love God. But then he turns around and he, he, he looks at it from the perspective of God himself. Those who are called according to his purpose. This is another way to say God is working things together for his people, for Christians. His calling is what we're talking about here. 
His calling looks like this, Romans 1.6, that this letter is written to you who are called to belong to Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. You know what this is? This is a different kind of calling than just the general calling of, of preaching the gospel and telling everybody, hey, Jesus calls you to come. That's one kind of call that the Bible talks about, and it's real. Every time we preach the gospel and every time we invite sinners to come and to believe in repentant faith in Jesus Christ, that's what we call a general call. But this is talking, when it says called according to his purpose, this is talking about a different kind of call that the Bible uses as well for that word call. It's talking about what we call the effectual call of God. This is talking about what happens in Ezekiel chapter 36 when God says, here's what I'm going to do for you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. That's that heart that said no every time to God's call before. And I will give you a heart of flesh. He says, you know why you said yes to the call of God in the gospel? It's because he gave you a new heart. It's because he effectually called you. I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. This is the effectual call of God to save sinners miraculously. Do you know that there is no such thing as the kind of unbeliever who will believe? There is no such thing. You say, well, how is it that any of us believe? It's a miracle. It's a literal miracle, and we call it effectual calling. It's the kind of call that it's talking about in Romans 8.28, those who are called according to his purpose. If you want to see this a little clearer, look down one or two verses here. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. That means he forgave their sins and made them right with God. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This isn't talking about the kind of call that's like, hey, I hope some people will come. This is talking about God reaching in and changing a heart and bringing somebody to himself. That is the supernatural saving work of God that has to be done from the outside. You can't make yourself born, and you can't make yourself born again, but God can. God can do it, and that's what we're talking about. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, you hear that? To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it's to those who love God and who are called, it says called according to his purpose. He doesn't say according to our purpose. According to his purpose. This is saying God is sovereign over all of this. God is sovereign over who he calls. God is sovereign in his purposes over who he will save and who he will work for their good in all things. What is his purpose? 1 Timothy 1.9. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Isn't that amazing? 
God had this planned out before the ages began. That's a sovereign God who gives grace. Or Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to whether or not we were the kind of person who would believe. It doesn't say that. He says according to the purpose of his will. His will. Oh, that's good. That's amazing. That's amazing. But here's what the big takeaway for Romans 8:28. We're going to get more next week as we get into what's called the golden chain of redemption in verses 29 and 30. Oh, I'm, I'm itching for that. Some of you are too. We're going to come back more and more to the call and the purpose and the predestination of God that are, that are spoken of there. But for Romans 8:28, here's the big takeaway for us. God is not working all things for good for everyone. God is working all things for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. For those who remain in their sin and their hatred of God, which they would not probably usually call hatred, it would just be some sort of an indifference because they don't really care about the things of the Lord. For those who remain in that, God is not working for their good. God is working for his glory in their eternal receiving of his justice for their sins. God is not working all things for the good of those who remain forever in their sin. As I said, I want to give you a lot of scripture about all this. Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Or Romans 9 Verses 21 through 23. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Here's the reality. God is going to be glorified for all eternity for every single human being. For his elect, by the way, how do you know if you're his elect? Well, you believe in the Lord Jesus and you're saved. And so for his elect, those that he saves by his grace, who calls according to his purpose, you know what he's going to do? He's he's going to be glorified by showing grace to us forever and ever. And what about for those who we call the reprobate, those that God chooses to leave in their sins? Well, God's going to be glorified in them forever, not by showing his grace, but by showing his justice forever and ever. Now, for those of you who love God and who love people who don't love God, and you want God to work for their good, what, what do you do? Well, here's the answer. Two things. Pray for them and share the gospel with them. Okay? Why is that? Well, we pray for them because we know that God is the one who can reach in and change a heart. Human beings are not going to change their own heart. We can't change anybody's heart. But God can do it. 
God can effectually call the lost to himself just like he did for me and for you, believer. So we pray for that. The second thing you do is you keep on sharing the gospel with them, even if they don't want you to. You keep on telling them, God has been gracious to me, and he'll be gracious to you too. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Will you look to Jesus? Will you, will you believe? I should put it this way. If you believe in him, you'll know that it was for your sins that he died on that cross. Jesus is the one who can give them salvation and life. And if he's going to do it, he's going to do it through the power of God unto salvation, which is the gospel. So keep on preaching the gospel and keep on praying that God would change their hearts. What if today, what if today you are not among those who right now that you could look at this and say, yeah, God's working for my good. You just say, yeah, I don't think I love God. I'm okay with God. I don't mind God. I was willing to show up in church today. Isn't that enough? I hope God would take hold of your heart. I hope God would take hold of your heart. As I was thinking about this, I was remembering a high school kid I met a couple months ago who was on, uh, on his high school football team, and he was telling me about you know, just the great accomplishments that he's had. I mean, I can just, I mean, I, I, I've never experienced that, but I can imagine what it'd be like to be out on the field and everybody cheering and how much that must make you feel good. And, and I said, you know, I, I tried to encourage him in that. Like, that's really awesome. I'm, I'm, that's, that's really great. And, and I said, too, like, you know that's going to be over one day. Like, your, your high school football career is going to end. Maybe you're good enough to go and play college ball, and maybe that's going to be awesome. And maybe you're good enough to go and play pro ball, and that's going to be awesome. And just imagine how many millions of people might be cheering you on then. But guess what? That's going to be over one day too. And then one day your life's going to be over, and you're going to stand before God. And, And you can't just be content to say, well, things are going pretty awesome for me right now. I mean, we have, to, we have to set our minds on, is God for me? Not just is the crowd for me or are things going well for me right now, but is God for me? And here's how we know that God is for us. Look to Jesus. Recognize that you are a sinner. Be broken over your sin, but hand it over to Jesus, the Savior, who died to pay for sins like yours. Trust in him. He will forgive you. He will receive you. And and he will give you rest. And he will be for your good. To glorify himself forever in showing you grace and mercy. And not to glorify himself forever in showing you justice, which is in the position, the position that you're in as of right now. Come to Jesus, okay? So I just want to be clear there. God is not working all things together for everyone's good, but he is working all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Third question we need to answer here is, what is our good? What is our good? A lot of times when people quote this in sort of a flippant way, they're thinking about worldly comforts. Well, everything's working together for good, so in the end it's going to come around to where you're comfortable. Well, not necessarily. And in fact, we can say ultimately, definitely not. Because one day where you'll find yourself is a coffin. 
So we can't really say that. It's not ultimately about our worldly good. It's not ultimately about our comfort, about our health, about our wealth. But here's what it says. It's explicit in verse 29. This is the part of 29 that we're going to look at today to help us understand verse 28. It's the second half of verse 29. It says, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's the definition of our good that's right here. Now, if you don't think to yourself, well, that's the good that I want, well, submit your mind to Christ right now. Submit your mind to the Scriptures. Worship God right now in the Scriptures by saying, this is my good. This is what God has said is my good. It's much better than worldly comforts. It's much better than health. It's much better than wealth. It's much better than circumstances that I would prefer over my current circumstances. To be conformed to the image of of Christ. That's the first thing that it's talking about here. Now, when are we going to be conformed to the image of Christ? It's going to be full when we're standing in the presence of Jesus, especially on the day of resurrection, when we are given those new bodies and we stand complete before Christ, even, even as we groan for that eager awaiting of adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, as it said back in verse 23. That's part of what it's talking about here. He's saying, here is what you are ultimately headed toward. And it's also not just that thing in eternity, but it's how God is going to get us there even right now in the next five minutes. God is working for your good, believer, in the things that are in this life that sustain us in our faith and that press us forward in the path of glory, and in the path of being conformed to Christ. That's what is good for us. That is good. Now, you, you say to yourself, but that's, that's not what I've been asking for. I've been asking for finances. I've been asking that I could afford a car like my neighbor's. I've been asking that my wife would stop yelling at me. I've been asking for this. I've been asking for that. Well, well, that's not what... Guys, if you're a parent, you know this. People don't always ask for what's actually good for them. Do you, do you, know, do you know what our children would eat if we gave them everything that they ask for? I mean, they, they would be very sick very quickly. Or... Our bank accounts would be totally emptied out because they would spend every penny we had on toys. And then, you know, what else could we do? <laughs> Guys, now hopefully as we grow and mature, we understand a little better what's good for us, but we've got to be honest, not that much better. We don't understand that much better. God does, though. God knows where we need to go, where we need to get which is for him to keep hold of us. That's what he's going to do. He's going to keep hold of us. He's going to take us to the end. He's going to get us across the finish line so that we will stand complete in glory in Jesus Christ forever and ever. That's where he's taking us. That's what he's doing. That's what he's working all things together for, for you, believer, is for you to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're being conformed right now, it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
Or is it, it says in, in Romans 13, 14, that we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's good for us. And it's coming later, too. It says in Philippians 3, 21, that, that God will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. But you know what else is for our good? Not just that something would happen in us to carry us across the finish line. Not just that something would happen in us to make us more like Jesus, but also the glory of Christ himself is presented to us in verse 29 as part of our good. It says in verse 29 that we would be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Who are the many brothers? Us, believers. And it says here's the purpose for what he's doing. It's ultimately not about us. It's ultimately about him, his own glory, that he would be presented, known among the nations as God and Lord and the firstborn of many brothers, as the redeemer of God's elect for all eternity who would stand with us there in glory with his glorified saints so that we're going to see one day the glory of Christ is my goal and my good. And it's what I'm being conformed to, and it's the purpose of my conformity. It is about all of this in Jesus. All of this is about Jesus. It says in Colossians 1 that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, or I would add, or you. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And you know what? That is for our good, believers. That's for our good, that he would be presented as preeminent, the firstborn among many brothers. As it says in 1 John 3, 2, we are God's children now. But what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. His glory is transformative to us and good for us. In Christ, there is actually no difference, believer, between God's glory and your good. They're the same thing. God's glory is good for you. Your good is glorious to God. And he's going to work all things together for that. Just, just one more verse to, to think about here. John 17, 24, part of what Jesus prayed for us as believers in the garden on the night before he died. He said, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Guys, that's way better than your hurting back stopping to hurt. That's so much better than the things that we think, well, why isn't God working for my good in this? Well, guys, he's, he's got you on the path to glory, to behold Christ and be like him because we will see him as he is. Now, final question is this. What things work together for our good? 
You guys have another hour right now? Here's the answer to that question. Verse 28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. All things. Does that include our suffering? Yes. In fact, that's what this whole passage around Romans 8.28 is about. It's about our suffering. Reminds you of, of what it said back in verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, there have been some who, who see the context here and think, well, this is only talking about our suffering. That maybe this is one of those instances in Scripture where the word all in context doesn't mean all. But I think all in context here means all. It means absolutely everything. It means things like this. If you look at verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? They're some of the things that work together for our good. Or verse, uh, verse 38, death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. That's pretty much all. Everything. Absolutely everything that there is. Even our suffering. Because it said back in verse 17 that we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer him, for him or with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. But at the same time in our sufferings, we rejoice in our sufferings. Romans 5.3. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. You see what it's saying right there? Believer, God uses your suffering for your good, to grow you in endurance and in character and in hope in Christ that won't put us to shame. God works all things for our good, all things in creation, all things in his providence. God's created everything, and how God has created everything is for your good, believer. Think about how he made all of these animals that nobody had ever thought of, and God just thought them up and brought them into being. Some of the things you look at are crazy, even the ones that are extinct now. Did you know that God made them and directed their lives and their existences and their extinction and everything in between for your good, to be conformed to the image of Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He it includes where he put the continents, where he put the beaches, where he put the rivers and the oceans and the planets and the stars and the galaxies. All of that he did specifically with your name in mind, believer. Those who love God are called according to his purpose. He made the earth round. He made it go around the sun. You've got day and night and seasons. He made all of the laws of nature. You've got the, the tiniest little details of nuclear physics all the way up to the giant, incomprehensible things of astrophysics. And God did all of that, put those things into place for our good, believer. Everything that humanity has ever understood or ever will understand or ever won't understand, 
God has done it for our good. And, and the things that are forever going to be just beyond our ability to grasp in our own lives, he's done them for our good. He's done it in creation and how he makes us. He says in Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And you say to yourself, well, what about this defect in me? What about pastor's weird nose? My kids make fun of me for that. But, boy, there's things a lot more serious than that. So much more serious than that. And here's what it says in Exodus 4.11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He's done it for our good. Or John 9, where there was this man blind from birth, and the, the disciples asked, Who sinned that this man... This man or his parents, that he was born blind. And, and here's what Jesus answered. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He was born blind for his good. Amazing. What about God's works, not just of creation, but of providence? That's, that's how God preserves what he's made, how he governs what he's made, how he directs all of the events of everything from the smallest to the greatest, including human actions, all of it. How does God's working of all things in the way that things play out in time and space and in history? Well, there's some things that are just obvious kindnesses to us where we can just look and say, that is an obvious thing that I need to thank God for. Thank you, God. And it says in Romans 2.4 that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Not to just say, boy, God's been good to me. I, I better just not change anything. But no, God has been good to me undeservingly. I should repent and love him. Or there's obvious difficulties that would come up, like in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire. That doesn't sound very good. But he says, and I will refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested, and they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. Oh, that's their good. That's the good right there, to conform them to the image of Christ. Guys, the time and place that you were born, that's, that's a kindness from God. We can especially see that as Americans alive today. Just think if you were born in Moldova in 1746, boy, things would be different, wouldn't it? But even for those that he chose to have born there at that time, for those who are his redeemed people, it was for their good. The parents and the family that he gave you, maybe you'd say to yourself, well, I got great, loving Christian parents. I can see how that's for my good. Or maybe you say to yourself, I don't understand at all how the family that God gave me is for my good. Some very hard circumstances behind some, some people's lives. You know what? God's still over that. It's still for our good. Here's one of the hardest questions. What about our own sin? If God is causing all things to work together for our good, does that include your sin against God? Well, I can say yes. Because he works it out for our discipline, and he works it out for our grace. 
In Deuteronomy 8.2, he says to his people, the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. You know why they were out there? Because they sinned against God. But he says that he might humble you, testing you. And then in verse 16, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. It's amazing. He says in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He uses our sin to show us discipline, to grow us in love for him and in holiness toward him. And he uses our sin, believers, to show us more grace for his glory. Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now if you hear that and you say to yourself, amazing. I can sin all I want because God's going to turn it for my good. That is not an attitude of loving God. That's, that's an attitude of being on the path to destruction. What this is, though, this is a comfort to us who are believers, who are not looking forward to sin, but who are looking backward on our sin and saying, how could I have fallen into that? And grieved and broken over it, but we can say, God is going to use it for my discipline, and God is going to increase grace upon grace for my good. What about the evil actions of others? Yes. Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. What about when people oppose the preaching of the gospel? Well, Paul says from prison, as he's in prison for preaching the gospel, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Amazing. Or when we're persecuted, he says in 2 Thessalonians 1.5 that God indeed considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. All of this is for our good and for the glory of Christ. What about the sin of crucifying Jesus? Did God work that for our good? Absolutely. It says in Acts 4.27, In this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It's amazing to think if the sin of crucifying the Lord of glory hadn't happened, I'd be doomed. God worked it for our good. And he even worked it to where Jesus dying on the cross could show his grace and his glory even through the words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Amazing what God does. What about when God withholds from us the things that we think would be good for us? Well, he says in Psalm 84:11, and we were in this in prayer meeting on Wednesday night, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Believer, as you're trusting in the Lord, as you're seeking the Lord, you can trust he will not withhold any good thing from you. Which doesn't mean he's going to give you everything you think of. But it does mean that if he's withholding something from you, it is not something that would be good for you in your conformity to Christ, in the glory of Christ. He knows what he's doing. 
He says in James 2.5, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? He says, he says that there's this great reversal that God loves to do where it's so often those that he gives the least to in this world that he gives the most to in the world to come. An example of that was one more in in Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and in fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. Well, that sounds like good, doesn't it? And then he says at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. That doesn't sound so good. He says he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. You can just imagine that as both of these men die, that the world looking on would say, the man who hated God had everything. He had the good things. The man who loved God had nothing. He had the bad things. God doesn't work together for the good for those who love God. God worked together or something worked together for the good of that rich evil man. But here's what it says. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and was in Hades in torment. God does not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. Our suffering we can count as joy because we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness has its full effect that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's James 1, 2, and four, 2 through 4. And we have this testing of our faith where he refines us like gold through the fire. Guys, what about our death? This is the last thing. Okay? I, I, I know I said I, we're going to do all things. I told my wife, I just I can't quit listing all things. There's so many things. But this, this last one, what about the fact, believer, that you have in front of you, unless Jesus comes back first, that hasn't been the case for many millions who went before us. What about the fact that you have your physical death in front of you? Why would God choose for you to be among those who physically die rather than being here at the day when Jesus returns and not sleeping, but being transformed. Well, here's what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 1.9, We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Or Philippians 3.10, That I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection for the dead. Or just one more. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amazing. Guys, God is working and will work and always has worked from eternity past and he always will work to eternity future all things together for good to those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Here's what we can do with this. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our fortress. That's what we can do. Trust that the Lord is good. 
move forward in faith and in faithfulness, knowing that he is on your side, believer. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's what it says in 1 Peter 5.10. Here's what you're headed toward. Here's your good that you're headed toward. 1 Corinthians 2.9, as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Set your heart and your hope on Christ and his glory and being conformed to him. And if you don't love God and you're saying, why are we still sitting here? Turn to him. He'll show you mercy. He'll show you grace. He'll forgive you, and he'll be for you and not against you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you uh, are so gracious to us. You've given us everything in Christ for us who love you and are called according to your, your purpose. God, we don't take any credit for the fact that, we've, that we love you. We know that we love because you first loved us and called us to yourself. Father, I pray for those whose hearts are not set on Jesus right now, who don't believe, for those who consider themselves religious and yet don't believe, for those who don't care or consider themselves to be aligned with some other system. I pray that you would Take hold of their hearts. I pray that you would draw them to the person of Jesus. Call them and grant them to be those that you would love and who would love you. Forgive their sins. But God, I thank you that for those, us that you've brought to yourself that we can trust. That even as we seek better circumstances sometimes, even as we pray for better circumstances sometimes, that we can be thankful in all circumstances knowing that you are for us, not against us, that you cause all things to work together for our good. So grant us the grace to obey what your Bible says, to be still and know that I am God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.